everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with uh, Inez once again. Um, and Inez, this uh, last week, we've had two entries. I mean, we knew this was coming uh, last time we talked, uh, Pence and Christie. I think we've covered Pence and Christie, um, you know, the last few shows. Uh, but, you know, now they're officially in the game. Are, is there anything sort of you thought that was noticeable about their announcements and their sort of rollouts? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the the January 6th focus that um, that Pence rolled out with. I think, I mean, I, I said last time I'm completely not a fan of Mike Pence. I think if you're going to fold on the central sort of issues like religious liberty that you're identified with, I just long thought of him as a politician without a spine. Um, that being said, if you have this, you're going into the Republican Party with this liability of having confronted and, and um, told Trump no during January 6th, I think it's a good idea to go straight through it because certainly the voters haven't thought of, forgotten about it. So, I mean, I, I think, I mean, his ad was very much a throwback to Reaganism. Um, I don't think that's particularly effective. That being said, I don't think anything for Mike Pence is going to be particularly effective. And at least he salvages some self-respect by doing it this way. I mean, I think it would be really cringy to watch him sort of scrape and bow again after that. Um, so I'm glad he's not doing that, at least. What did you think about when they asked him on CNN and he said, basically, they got, he got up to say he hopes Trump is not indicted over the uh, classified documents uh, case. Uh, and, but then, like, they they sort of pressed him, what if he broke the law? And he really didn't seem to have a good answer on that. Yeah, I mean, there are two different issues here. Um, and I don't know which one he was being interviewed over. One is is the the First Amendment question of whether Trump incited violence. It seems to me that Trump has a pretty ironclad case that he did not. Mike Pence called those comments ill-advised and sort of uh, criticized them, but from the leadership perspective, not the the um, legal one. And I think that's right. Uh, it's pretty clear that Trump, I mean, Trump added the whole peaceful thing at the end. It's pretty clear he wasn't inciting violence. If, if yeah, he was yeah. inciting there's violence, no, we no have First Amendment case, yeah. endless examples of politicians inciting violence from, you know, Bernie to, um, I can't remember, I can never remember who it is that... Uh, told people to go and get in Republicans faces and even in like restaurants and stuff during the 2020 uh, summer of Floyd, if you will, Barbara Lee, I think. Um, anyway, uh, we have a congresswoman doing congresswoman doing that. I mean, that that case, I don't think is going to hurt Trump at all. Um, the documents case in itself, I don't think it hurts Trump. Um, the lying to the grand jury piece of the case is the only piece that I would be worried if I were or Trump, because, you know, on the underlying charge, he has a lot of answers, both political and legal, right? On the underlying charge, he can say, legally, you know, I had the power to declassify. Um, I think there's a really strong case that you don't need to follow the bureaucratic procedure as president. This is another one of those cases where you're elevating sort of administrative state procedure over the people who actually hold constitutionally the power um, given to them by our, our political procedure and by uh, elections. Right. So I, I think he has a really strong underlying case that but you also can't make false statements to a jury. <laughs> um, and to the extent that they can prove that he did that, like false statements to a grand jury, that's a serious charge. It carries jail time. Um, so to the extent that I think he has a problem there, it's that um, he has a good political case against it, though. He just says, hey, like they found a bunch of documents in Joe Biden's backyard, too. Right. Um, and it, comparing it to the Hillary thing. Right. She destroyed classified documents under subpoena, right? Like this, these are, I mean, he has a really strong case to do the Trump thing, which is point to how the rest of the system is so incredibly corrupt and they're just coming after him. Uh, but still that one sticking point, uh, if I were the Trump team, I would worry about that one sticking point about what was misrepresented potentially to the grand jury, because that, especially in a DC case, I feel like yeah. you're not in a good position if you did that. Yeah, I mean, from the details of what's been reported, it really seems like there was, you know, the legal system, as you know, sort of, uh, you know, frowns upon sort of, you know, bad faith efforts, sort of not to comply with, you know, what they're trying to do. And so there's, you know, subpoenas that, you know, they seem to have to have lied about, you know, the document availability, they seem to have, uh, uh, you know, there's a story that they had a dress rehearsal for how to move documents in, in case the feds showed up. I mean, it's really, really bad and really, really seemingly incriminating. Um and so, yeah, I mean, you know, it, the, you know, the, it's, it's sort of, it's hard for Pence's, Pence is going to be in a difficult situation. So this could be, I mean, we were, there was reports that this could happen by today. You know, we're, we're recording this July uh, 8th. Maybe it'll be, uh, maybe it'll, the, the subpoena will have come down by the time people listen to this um, or not. You know, it's probably, it's probably coming soon. I mean, I, I don't think there's many people who think there won't be 
um, there won't be a uh, there won't be a charge in this case. Um, is this going to be the New York charge all over again, or do you think this is basically you know this is something different? If I were the feds in this case, I'd be really mad at Alvin Bragg for sort of firing the uh, the weakest case first and making this an also oh and again Trump is being indicted right by his political yeah. enemies. Um, I, look, I don't know. I still think Trump's underlying case on this is is really strong about whether or not he had the power to declassify documents, to take documents. I think this is a very open question. Um, and, and certainly, again, he has that classically Trumpian case where he's like, yeah, they're coming after me, but they yeah. all do it would, this. It would, be sele- it would be selective in that case. If they just charge yeah. him and then all these other people, that would be selective. I think it's going to focus on uh, it's going to focus on his behavior, the cover up. Right. Right. And. But even there, politically, I don't think he has a problem. Legally, he might have a problem. But politically, I don't think he has a problem. Anyone who has a problem with this already doesn't like Trump, right? The question is how much the legal system can actually uh, can actually inhibit him from running for president, which itself is something I'm, I'm not I'm – sh- still, there's a part of me that's shocked that we're discussing this. Like, this is why we don't indict former presidents, especially on ticky-tack charges like this, right? Like, lying to a grand jury is not a ticky-tack charge. However, the underlying stuff is ticky-tack, is very clearly politically selective, right? Um, and so in, in some sense, uh, it reminds me of the, the, the Mike Flynn case, right, where if they weren't going after him, they wouldn't have this this underlying, this this finally, this piece that they might actually be able to get him on if they weren't coming after him politically to begin with. Um, I mean, this is this is why we don't play this game. We accept that there might be some some like Rod Blagojevich level behavior that goes on with former presidents, all, you know, whatever, five or six of them that are still alive, right? Uh, we kind of accept that possibility because it's so dangerous to start playing this game about whether or not you're going to lock up the Republican presumptive nominee of the Republican Party on something that is clearly politically motivated. I mean, that this is, it is, is overused, but it is banana republic stuff. Um, and so, I mean, I think Trump has a really good political case against it. The question is, and again, I don't believe, I can't, I can't believe we're having this conversation, but it's how much the legal system can prevent him from running for president. And that it, might not be a small though. issue. It can't though, right? I mean, what, what, is, what, what can it do? They well, can put him so in jail. I'm saying they can tie up his crime, right? He can't refuse That's to true. show up. They can, yeah. they can schedule hearings, right? They can, they can keep him basically in court um, and tied up answering a lot of, of the, you know, the sort of um, charges and requests from a courtroom when he should be running for president. That's also with regard to money, right? It's going to be expensive to fight this stuff. So, I mean, they really can tie him up for a long time where he should be going around having rallies and talking about snakes and scorpions or whatever it is. that. Yeah. But like they can tie him up for a long time with these cases. Um, and if he ignores them, they can get worse for him, right? So, I don't know. And then there's there's the final question that if unless this um, the charge is very narrowly on the line to the grand jury charge. So if I'm putting myself in their positions, that's what I would do. I would very narrowly try to prosecute this one charge where they have the strongest case against him. They probably won't do that because, again, it is political and they want to sweep in as much stuff that they don't like about Trump as possible. But if there's a lot of those charges, it very well may get like not get to a courtroom before the election's over. So that really makes it do or die for Trump, right? Um, again, this is why we don't play this game uh, with with domestic opposition is because if he gets elected, the case goes away. If he if he loses, he goes to jail. I mean, that's not the kind of incentives you want for people, you know, um, you know, going in and out of power. It's not the incentive that you want to be able to keep a, a peaceful transition of power. It's very dangerous stuff. That, that's true. But the but the flip side of that is if you um, you know if you say basically we don't indict former presidents or we don't indict people who are frontrunners or serious candidates for president, I mean, does that mean that people can just sort of break the law with impunity? Because that's that's also a worry too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is a worry. I would argue that it's a much lesser worry than the alternative. And I'm very upfront about this. I I, I there's a lot of people I think on the right who just don't accept this reality and. So I, I, my basic rule is the the Omar rule, right? If you come at the king, you best not miss, right? If you are going to indict a former president who may be the domestic political opponent the next year, right, you better yeah. have ironclad evidence of extremely serious crimes. It better be on the level of everyone saw Trump shoot some, someone on Fifth Avenue, right? Um, to, to come after a former president on this kind of low level, most of this stuff is sort of low level. What is it? 
failing to report the bribe that he gave to a former, you know, hookup, <laughs> failing to report that correctly on his taxes, right? Um, you know, basically lock up the entirety of, of our politician class on that one. Um, you know, keeping documents signed by Kim Jong-un or whatever, right, <laughs> after, which, which clearly every other president has done and vice president has done in recent history because we're finding those documents. And we have a very clear par parallel in Hillary, a worse parallel that did not get prosecuted, right? I mean, it's it's a, a very clear First Amendment case on, on the incitement stuff on January 6th, right? Like, these are not, they're not apolitical. They're not ironclad. They don't have you know, they depend on a lot of interpretation. They're, they're novel legal theories, like the one in New York is, you know, basically trying to scratch my dad's, my dad's expression. I've never heard anyone in America use this expression, but it, it fits here, which is, um, you know, trying to scratch your left ear with your right hand. Like the legal theory is convoluted and novel. Um, so this is, this is not, you know, come at the king, don't miss kind of stuff. It, it's, it's a scattershot, um, like uh, what's what's the the other metaphor I'm reaching for would be uh, it's like a buckshot. It's like coming at the king with buckshot and you're hoping that one of the pellets is going to smack him right between the eyes. That's that is really, really dangerous stuff. Um, you're you're playing with the the sense of, of a, a huge part of the American people, millions and millions of people that that the political system is in, and the legal system, more importantly, is completely politicized. And we're the kind of regime that locks up the opposition. Yeah, the Alvin Bragg one. I mean, I think that, you know, this is the same DA who just charged uh, Dan Daniel Penny, which is also outrageous. Um, the, uh, this, After you know, I remember. We get a grand jury indictment, by the way, which is pretty yeah. unusual, which you usually don't That's see. Amazing. You see the like ham That's sandwich amazing. stuff. He could not That's get amazing. a grand jury indictment. He went for it anyway. Yeah, that's amazing. The uh, and and then the I mean I, I was listening to like the New Yorker podcast like right when it happened. Even they were saying, well, this is sort of a, you know an iffy case. This is a stretch. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of legal analysts, just really aren't buying this. So you're absolutely right. Um, and then this this one, I don't know. This this uh, there's not there doesn't appear to be there's no reporting that there's going to be an incitement to violence. There's there doesn't seem there's going to be anything on January. Six getting people to you know storm the Capitol that doesn't seem like it's going to happen, um, but the documents case you know there's there's you know there seems like something legitimate there. I I don't you know I don't yeah I mean as far as t tying him up for running for president so he was you know he they told him that the uh, the trial in New York is going to start in March so it's around the time of Super Tuesday and apparently Trump's reaction in court um, was unhappy to that so this is around like Super Tuesday. Um, it's going to tie him up, but I, you know, it's unless, you know, unless the stuff really, I'm trying, I'm trying to imagine, you know, I'm trying to imagine like, you know, if it's just like the, uh, the uh, first indictment, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's just good for him. Right. He shoots up, he shoots up in the polls after that. Right. He's in, he's in, he's in a court. He's in a, he's in court there. You know, the, the, there's maybe cameras in the court, maybe not. Trump is still the focus. No one else is going to get attention. I mean, are Republican voters going to abandon him at that point? It's it's hard to imagine. So you're right. Theoretically, they could like tie someone up and prevent him from running. In this case, you know, Trump like doesn't even want to be at the debates, right? Like, what if he can't go to the debates because he's got some legal? <laughs> well, that's probably probably too soon. But you, you see what I'm saying? Like for him, he could just you know he just wants to sort of coast to the nomination, and this just might make it more likely. Possible. I mean, I think I was also thinking about the general election. Like most of these cases will continue into into the general election. Um, and there I think yeah. it is very possible that tying up Trump and not uh, leaving him money and time to fly around the country and campaign could be important. Um, maybe not. Maybe not in the digital age. Maybe it doesn't matter anymore. But, um, you know, to the extent that it still matters very much to be able to, to go and, and press flesh with, with voters and stuff all around the country. I mean, that, that could that could keep him from doing it. He's got all of these, these now there are four cases. Now there might be a federal indictment on top of like that. It's a lot of legal stuff. Um, I, I don't think it really hurts him all that much. I think the people who are politically, uh, the people who are, again, who are horrified by this are, are not going to be Trump voters, uh, you know, anyway. I mean, I guess you could make the case that it might energize the opposition, but I think Trump does that so much anyway, that, you know, just having his name on the ballot has the same effect. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know how much any of this hurts to the extent that it matters in the primaries. I think it's less, I tend to think like that shoot up in the polls effect and we'll see shortly, um, 
probably has its limits in the sense that if it's the fourth indictment, I don't think that people react the same way as when it's the first one. Um, but it does keep Trump constantly in the news and it ensures that DeSantis and everybody else are going to be constantly asked questions. Well, what do you think about Trump's legal case? And it's just Trump, the, Trump will remain the center of the universe, the political universe in which he revolves. And to that extent that it, it denies his opponents the ability to actually talk about anything other than Trump in the news cycle, I think that does help Trump. Yeah. And, you know, this, this sort of a, seems to be sort of a conventional wisdom that maybe hurts him in the general, but doesn't hurt him in the primaries. I looked at, you know, polling right before and right after um, the Bragg indictment, and he, he didn't he didn't slip at all. Um, he's even might have gained a point um, on Biden. Uh, so, you know, I think this makes him look like I, I under, uh, you know, makes him look like the, uh, you know, the underdog makes it seem, look, seem like he's being picked on. I think it probably, you know, on balance, if he's got legal problems going into the election. It might it might help. Um, I, that's my in, that's my intuition. I'm not I'm not sure about that, but it's it's to be far from obvious um, that it actually hurts him. Yeah, I mean, and look, so this is all novel stuff, but we've never had a, a president running under indictment. So, I mean, yeah, well, as far as I know, as far as I can recall in American history, we've never had a president running under indictment. Um, yeah. So I, you could easily be right. I just my my worry is that actually they actually might convict him. On this one charge, they might convict him, and there's jail time involved. So one imagines that he can do something crazy. This is a federal charge. He could pardon himself, right, if he, if he wins the election. Yeah. Um, if he doesn't win the election, he can't do that. Um, he maybe goes to jail. And I don't know. Those are not incentives that yeah. are conducive to a normal exchange of, of, of power. Um, and I don't know what happens, but it scares me. Yeah, the New York estate case, he can't be pardoned there. And, um, you know, it's, it theoretically has, I think, like a year or two year, uh, maximum. So it theoretically, it doesn't seem like something you'd probably go to jail for. Who knows? New York, you know, New York jury probably don't like Trump. You know, who knows what, who knows what'll, what'll happen? Uh, you're right. Um, it is, uh, it is, it is, I mean, it is fascinating. I mean, we are looking toward like the scenario where Trump will probably, I mean, the most likely nominee, um, and he will have court cases and they will be, you know, there will be, um, jail time potentially at the end of them. And, you know, the, I, you know, and like what's going to happen? I mean, like the, you know, this is like the, the Georgia case, right? So you have the New York case, you got the Georgia case. There will be trials. There will be trials that will have to be scheduled. They're going to run into the election, right? I don't think I, I, they, he could, he's probably going to delay it. So they'll probably, and then what happens? No precedent. Do they, do they, Cancel the trial, so I see in four years. Can a state <laughs> demand, can a state extend jurisdiction over the president of the United States? I have no idea. I, I think most well, of the, the states... They, do have, state I mean, they do have jurisdiction. You're still the pre I mean, you're still a person who committed a crime. You, you don't get magic powers if you're president. I mean, the president has like, a lot of magic powers with regard to that, though. But it, but it hasn't normally been applied vis-a-vis -vis the states. And maybe there's some precedent to this that I'm not aware of, but... I mean, the president has plenty of, of uh, shielding power. He has, you know, he has executive privilege. Um, there, there's enormous shielding power that the president has with regard to court cases. Yeah. Now, but all those court cases that I'm aware of have always been federal. And I mean, that's a, I have no idea what happens in that that case. But I actually don't think on a lot of these um, state charges, either if there is a conviction on the state like. like there, there's a lot of grounds you can appeal on uh, because, again, the underlying legal stuff is not that scary. These four cases are not that that scary for Trump. The only thing that is, I think, in, in my view, is scary for him is is this uh, misrepresenting to the grand jury. Um, and that, that is federal. And that's, yeah. that's probably if he's going to be indicted by the feds, that's probably going to be that. And that case um, may or may not be adjudicated by the election. It might be adjudicated after the election. Yeah. You referred to four cases. I, I, I see three. I see the New York, the uh, documents, the Georgia case. Are you including, what, what do you, what, what, where do you see four? So, so New York, Georgia, um, he has, he had that, that, um, he had the civil case, which is also in New York, I guess. Um, and then shoot, what's the, there's, there's the, the, there is the documents and then the um, January 6th. Those are two separate things. The indictment, or sorry, incitement to violence and and uh, the documents request act or whatever, like records request act. Is, is uh, Jack Smith also investigating the January 6th stuff? Is that the same prosecutor? No, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, yeah. 
they haven't been able to. And then on top of all these indictments, by the way, we might have two people running. I mean, probably not because one of them controls the FBI. But I mean, there's there's quite a few developments in the corruption case with Biden. And there's apparently, you know, that's moving forward um, that Christopher Ray is on his way to be uh, held in contempt of Congress for failing to produce or he, he did produce this document, but it was heavily redacted. And like, you know, members of Congress weren't allowed to take notes on it. Um, or, or or keep it in their possession, right? Uh, but but apparently what was in there, and some of this might be a media game and you never know, but apparently some of what's in there has confirmed what they they believe is happening with this apparently $5 million bribe to Joe Biden. This is directly to Joe Biden. This is not Hunter. This is not like the rest of his family. This is Joe Biden. I mean, so <laughs> theoretically, we have two people under investigation. We have two people, the nominees of each major party under yeah. under uh, investigation. And this, one, what we, and this one we have, Republican congressman saying there's a whistleblower, but do they, but they can't. Last I checked, they couldn't find him. Well, what's the status of this thing? Well, so the FBI is saying they have to protect the informer, right? So, and that that's ah. why they're not releasing a lot of this information. And there was these battles between uh, the committees subpoenaing this information and subpoena, subpoenaing Chris Ray uh, to talk about it. Is my understanding, um, and and he's not appeared to talk about it. Um, they have given them some version of this document heavily redacted. They're not satisfied with that, right? So, I mean, to some extent, it's hard to say what they're going to do. The worst thing the House can do is is bring impeachment charges. The Senate obviously not going to pick that up. Uh, so I think the FBI feels very emboldened to refuse the subpoena. Um, but who knows, you know, if, if the composition of the Senate changes, that changes. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I, the way I feel about congressional Republicans is it, it doesn't. It seems like this is you know we don't have you know we have claims and we we don't we don't I mean we don't have any corroboration. Not even like a real investigation. It's just that one guy saying stuff, right? Is there even allegations that he has like proof of something? No. So it's but it's it's the guy who's saying it is a a um, informant and somebody that has worked with the FBI for a long time and has who's who's um, information has been judged credible in the past. Right. So you already have more than you had with the the dossier um, with with okay. the, the yeah, investigation. Seems, I mean, seems worth, of, of seems Trump. Worth an investigation. So I think yeah. the real one of the real elements of this, aside from what's true about these underlying charges, is going to be, especially when you have the Durham report out, this laying this out side by side, saying how the FBI has treated information from credible informants. Right. Uh how they've treated it differently every step of the process when it was about Trump and when it's about, about Joe Biden. Right. So um, I, I think that that's, that's probably a stronger case than anything else, but, but in terms of politics, it doesn't really matter. I, I tend to think a lot of this corruption stuff, it, it's almost that people are, people just assume that everybody in power is corrupt now, which is why it doesn't hurt Trump and why it may not hurt Biden. Yeah. I think that's I think that's I think that's right. Yeah, it used to be you could have a we're beyond corruption scandals, right? I think you could see like Chris Christie, uh, who we might want to talk about, came out and said, you know, Jared and Ivanka left office and they got you know they they uh, you know after the Trump administration they got two billion from the Saudis. Yeah, there seems to be some weird stuff going on with Jared and the Gulf Arab monarchies, and nobody cares. I mean, nobody cares, and nobody cares about Hunter either, except for. Republicans. I mean, I don't think Democrats, I don't think even swing voters at this point, it just seems like, it just seems like a wash to people, right? I, I don't think it, you know, the 2016, it seemed like the Clinton Foundation stuff did, you know, it seemed like it did sort of hit, um, I guess there was like a thing where it's like Trump sort of people expected and then like Clinton, maybe, you know, they did it, you could still sort of get Hillary on being corrupt, but it seems like by now, you know, I think there's been like after after the Hillary thing and now with all the stuff of Hunter, with pe which people they might not have an opinion on, but they sort of just hear, you know, that something's fishy is going on. Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone expects any politician to be to be clean at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's bad news and goes towards the, the general uh, mistrust of institutions. And, and you can see this in the polling on the FBI and the DOJ, right? It, it plummets on the Republican side. Democrats slightly up. Uh, they trust the FBI and the DOJ more, which is obviously partisan, but um, you still have an overall very, very low trust in these these law enforcement agencies. That's that's bad for the country. I mean, I, I know that it sounds Pollyannish at this point to say that, but, you know, indicting former presidents is bad for the country. Uh, the fact that millions and millions of Americans on both sides of the political aisle 
do not trust the FBI and the DOJ to, you know, sort of adjudicate some of these cases fairly, uh, to bring these cases and investigate them in, in a fair way. Uh, that's that's really bad. Um, that being said, I think it's it's there are good reasons to believe all this stuff. So I'm not saying that it, that one has to be crazy um, not to trust these institutions. It's, in fact, it's worse because you don't have to be crazy. You just have to see how they've behaved, particularly in the last five years. Uh, but none of this is 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 quote unquote good for the country. I think it's it goes to the extremely serious uh, the fact that Americans are are just shrugging at the fact that that these two um, people who are probably going to win the nomination are are probably corrupt. That's that's not a good thing. And even if you went back fifteen years, I mean, this any one of these things would be an enormous deal, and everybody would be like up in arms about it. And and um, any one of these stories, of which there's been six, seven, eight. At this point, about the Bidens and Trump, um, any one of those stories could destroy a political career 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and it just doesn't seem to be the case now because everybody is rightfully cynical about it. They're like, yeah, they're all good. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you, sometimes you hear stories about, like, you know, Harry Truman, like, wouldn't sell. Like, they, he, like, didn't have that much money after he retired and they wanted him to sell, I don't know, some product like toothpaste or, or something. And he, like, wouldn't do it because it was beneath his dignity. Um, Ulysses S. Grant, I, I heard that, uh, uh, basically, you know, he, his, one of the reasons why he wrote his memoirs, which ended up being very highly regarded was he actually needed the money. Like, you know, he just didn't have a lot of money after, uh, being president. Uh, I, I blame, I sort of blame Bob Dole. Um, you're probably not old enough to remember this, but I, in the late 1990s, Bob Dole, like, you know, he runs for president and loses in 1996. And then he endorses Viagra. And it was funny because Viagra was new. And like they got Bob Dole as their, uh, you know, talking, being on TV, like, oh, I, I have Viagra now. Like, yeah, I'm doing much better. And like, it was like really fun. Everyone was just, it was like the best marketing campaign for Viagra ever because they like, you know, it's just like, it's like a boater pill. People like weren't used to it. So it was just like funny in and of itself. Uh, but then like the Bob Dole commercials, it was just like, you know, late night, like talk shows, like, haha, here's Bob Dole with his Viagra. And like, he had this life of being like World War II hero and like senator and like presidential candidate and just ends it with, you know, I'm selling Viagra pills, you know, not have any, anything against anyone taking Viagra. Uh, but it was, it was, it was something different. Um, and I wonder if I'm thinking about Gorbachev, Gorbachev also was in that commercial, right? Which I, I interpret now as as sort of the American equivalent (laughs) of, uh, you know, dragging the king of the gulls in, in a cage for, for a triumph, right? Like you humiliate your enemies by making them do a piece of hut commercial when they once ran, you know, the second greatest uh, global power, right? Um, but apparently we do it to our own too. So I don't know what that says about the American empire. Yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't seem like, you know, I can't think of examples of this from the 80s. But yeah, just um, Bob Dole might not have been the first. It's just like my lifetime, like the first one I really... Uh, remember. And then after that, you know, you can endorse, anyone can endorse anything. I saw something of George W. Bush uh, a few years ago. He was going to like, there was like some like uh, uh, thing where it was like, um, it was like some kind of like motivational speaker, just like this lame, very gouty, like guy who just gives motivational speeches. It has like this big, uh, you know, this big like conference. And it was like Kobe Bryant, you know, Kobe Bryant was still alive. And like, I don't know, some singer or something. And then like George W. Bush and Bush is just like sitting in the picture with like Kobe Bryant and like the singer. And it's just like, you know, like, what is this? This is not, if I was the president, like that's, that's not what I would do in my retirement. I'd make money. Maybe I'd be on a board or something, maybe, but I don't know if I'd give speeches at like self-help conferences. That does not seem to be like something they should be doing. I mean, there's, there's a larger question here about whether any legitimate authority can be. Uh, sort of claimed in a mass democracy, particularly with social media, right? Whether the necessity, like the necessity of the veil over authority to some extent, the necessity that we believe that our leaders are not, you know, um, not endorsing Viagra and not like hawking stuff or, you know, um, I mean, I think there's something to be said for that. I, I used to think about the press under JFK just not reporting on his you know, all his affairs and his shady dealings and everything else. Um, and I used to think that was a dereliction of, of duty on the part of the media. I think now we almost have the opposite problem where we have a 24-7 news cycle. Um, we know too much about these people, although, of course, the, the press has a very strong political perspective and they do run interference for politicians that they like. Nevertheless, it's kind of hard to avoid these kinds of videos, right? Um, 
you know, we've all seen the president fall now. That that used to be a huge, huge deal, and now it's not apparently. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of of uh, just the, the respect that one needs to believe that people, the people in charge of the country, know what they're doing, which may have never been true. Is certainly not been true for the last thirty years. Um, but but it's it's another thing to know that abstractly and and to see it just in the open open view. Uh, I think this is very degenerative of the respect that's necessary to actually um, have the kind of authority and legitimacy that people or people will accept, um, for example, lawmaking or, or other uh, other exercises of, of hierarchy and authority. I, there, there's something very interesting about living in a, a mass democracy um, when you know everything about the leadership. What do you think, Steve? Brought up JFK. What did you? What do you think in retrospect of the um, of the Clinton impeachment? Um, there was, oh, you know, technically over, uh, technically over, um, you know, lo- uh, you know, uh, perjury. Uh, but actually, you know, it all started because of sex, and that's what they were interested in. Uh, what do you think that that was sort of, you know, that 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 was sort of like a, so, you know, that was that was something that just was different and something some kind of norm was broken there. Look, I was too young to really follow that um, when it happened, although. Of course. One, yeah. I, I will say my first, one sense. of my first political memories was listening to the president on the radio um, saying, you know, that he did not have sex with that woman or, uh, or sexual intercourse with her. I think it was his technical way of getting around it. Um, but I, I just believed him because you believe the president and the president doesn't lie. Um, I, I do think that obviously I was like a neat, naive child, but I do think that a lot of for a lot of people, that was the beginning of this kind of dam breaking where it's not like Bill Clinton did anything uh, that previous presidents, at least some of them, did. Uh, I mean, in the particulars, maybe, but <laughs> cigars and everything else. But um, it's not like previous presidents hadn't had affairs while in office and so on. Um, but it, it was maybe it is the first example of, of what I was referencing just a minute ago about this sort of mass democracy and mass media coming together to tell us everything about our leadership. So I think people were rightly shocked. I think we probably live to regret making such a big deal out of it and creating this entire special counsel system. And um, since then, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's the political temptation. Once there's a political tool out there for use, you, you basically can't put it back in the bottle. Like I think impeachment's going to become much more common now, um, now that it's been used so blatantly politically. And you can argue that that started in the 90s um, but the same thing with, you know, Supreme Court confirmations, right? Bork was the first very political com- confirmation. And since then, basically every uh, confirmation battle, and they're getting uglier and uglier over time as well. But e- basically every uh, confirmation battle of consequence that changes anything about the composition of the court is going to be a very aggressive and ugly political battle. There's no way, once you have that kind of weapon out there, it's going to be used by one side, it's going to be used by the other. Same thing with like the filibuster rules in the Senate and so on. It's just something to think about every time. But uh, at this point, I'm just, I'm sort of, again, this is, this all feels very old fashioned to even talk about. Like, like I said, I feel like we know that all of our leaders are corrupt and that they're all making money. I don't know if you've seen the unusual whales report every, every year, he just compiles how much better members of Congress did than the, um, whatever the baseline, I don't know anything about stocks, but the, the baseline of how the market did. And of course, you know, members of Congress, somehow they're all amazing stock traders and they all do almost all do well above the baseline. Right. So. So I haven't looked too much into this, um, but from uh, I saw somebody actually say that this was a um, that, that, that the guy was cherry picking that actually, if you look at different congressmen, that like he's just taking the ones who had like the best performances in the report. I don't know if that's that's true or not, but it's actually an interesting. Well, he has an average, question. like he takes all of them and the average is above. So there are members of Congress who below perform below, but consistently the average of all of them, like he just does a, all members of Congress versus the and yeah. and it's consistently above. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I'll post, I'll post the links to that. Um, yeah, this, you know, the norms, you know, the norms, I don't understand stocks. So (laughs) well, there's a baseline, but yeah. Okay. Well, we'll put the link in it. People can, people who know this stuff can, can look into it for themselves. Um, yeah, you know, the norms thing is, is very interesting. And these, these debates are sort of, it's like, you know, angels dancing on the head of a pin. It's like, I, you know, the courts, you know, I'm sure you follow closely. It's like everyone goes a little like one step further than 
uh, than the last one, then people will say, oh, the last thing you did was the broken the norm. So it was under the Bush administration, uh, George W. Bush, uh, the Republicans really started playing hardball with the, uh, court nominees. And so they, you know, they broke some, they broke, uh, they broke some norm there. And then Republicans were the first ones to, um, uh, get, I think it was get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court. So they're like, oh no, you took it to the Supreme Court. That is a much bigger, right? And so it's like, it's like, it's, it's all very stupid. And then the Mar, Mar, um, Merrick Garland thing, you know, it was like, it was, it was pretty, it was like almost McConnell almost like didn't even, you know, didn't even pretend like the, the you know, the, the, the justifications like, well, we're going to have another election. Like, yeah, we'll always have another election. I was actually interested to see what would happen if Republicans had the Senate and then Hillary won. Like, I don't think there was any principle that said they couldn't hold on to it for four years, but like, if you're going to have a judicial dictatorship, basically, if you're going to have a ju- judgeocracy where judges come along and basically they can just say whatever law you passed, we now say it's unconstitutional and like they can just basically do whatever they want. I, I think it's like legitimate. I-, I don't think, you know, I think there are basically you can basically do what you want. I think anything is fair, basically, when it comes to courts, um, although we do have to have some norm somewhere. I'm not a complete nihilist on this on this stuff. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I think some norms are really important. I, I agree with you that it was a tit, tit for tat thing going back and forth. Um, I do think, again, I do think the Bork confirmation was the first to, to break from what had been a standard of just confirming yeah. judges. But again, to what you just said, and I agree with it, the court started acting as a super legislature um, yeah. in, in the 60s and 70s. So it makes perfect sense that we would politicize the confirmation of judges. It's one of the most important political, you know, um, political, whatever, like expressions of elections that now that's why Trump had to put out that list and, and why the nominations have become so important. I mean, it is because the court itself has stepped so aggressively into politics and into, and I would say has carved out way too many issues from the democratic process, um, you know, especially starting in the seventies. So uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it's going to be now. I still think that, for example, it, it a good norm would be not to uh, bring in families and to bring in what are in many cases are, are obviously charges of, of sexual assault that fall far, far below the standard of credibility. Like that's a particularly ugly way of dealing with with it um, and an enraging way of dealing with it. Uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, it is going to be political. And, and the same thing about um, withholding you know, approval of, of uh, Garland's nomination. I mean, what's the difference actually between just refusing to, to, to hold the confirmation hearings and just holding the confirmation hearings and voting on it? Um, th- that Senate was never going to confirm Merrick Garland. I, I just I don't. No, I think that I think the I think the fear was that they would. It was like close to 50 50. And there was a fear that a few Republicans would like switch over and they actually would. I don't know. I, in any case, it's an exercise of political power that's completely legitimate, yeah, right? This is a political process mm-hmm. for a reason. This is this is the political gauntlet that Supreme Court justices have to run in order to be sat for life and uh, allegedly sat beyond politics. I, I think that's something very different, by the way, than what's happening currently with with uh, the the increasing push from the left to uh, to delegitimize the court as a whole. And, and to delegitimize, for example, uh, enforcement. You have AOC out there, which, you know, AOC says a lot of things, but um, very openly saying that, you know, the executive branch should refuse to uh, should refuse to enforce court decisions. Now, each branch has its its uh, constitutional duties in that regard, but uh, that really will completely break down uh, any any norms we have about the judiciary in this country. I mean, I think that's that's extremely dangerous. Um that seems to be the theme, right? We we have talked about multiple times, like whether we think the, the state of the country is bad or not. This is why I think the state of the country is bad. You can't point to any of these norms and procedures and institutions in important ways, not in the ways that like the democracy dies in darkness, you know, Washington Post, like sort of hysteria about things that Trump did or said, um, but in this deeper way where you have a real breakdown of the norms that are incredibly important to perpetuating a peaceful, for example, peaceful democratic transfer of power in the case of indictments of former presidents. Um, you have incredible, uh, you know, attacks on the, the independence of the judiciary. Right. Um, there was that uh, New York Times piece just published op ed published by a law professor saying that the court should essentially that that a democratic Congress should defund the Supreme Court. Right. Um this is published in the New York Times and taken seriously, right? That actually, oh, I'll give you another one. The norm that under Trump, we had generals communicating with China, 
without ever bringing those kinds of communications through the elected president. That, that's a pretty big one. You know, civilian control over the military. That's generally one of the those those big small R Republican norms for the people who are always banging on about norms. I mean, those kinds of norms that they are so up in the air and in many cases easily broken, um, I think, is is an indication that the country is in very serious trouble and not just sort of surface level trouble where we're yelling at each other. Yeah, I mean, we should. This is a, we should have a longer conversation about just Trump and norms and sort of what what happened there. And yeah, we might we might have a different we might have a, a different view in January six and all that. Um, but yeah, we could we could we could table that we could table that for now. Um, let's get to uh, let's get to sort of well today is um, well today's June and we're in June and so it's Pride Month and a lot of exciting things have been happened happening in Pride Month. I mean, I saw your tweet uh, in which. Uh, you know the the logos um, are not they're they're not putting rainbow logos up. Uh, there was a um, an analysis by a guy named Noah Carl uh, who argues that the tar- the um, Target and the Bud Light um, boycotts are basically you know there there's more of a statistical uh, sort of signal that they're having a big impact, much more than the other stuff um, like Disney and these other things and these historical uh, trends. There was a you know just a couple um, videos of the last like day or two of Armenians in Glendale and then Muslims in Montgomery County. Montgomery County is, is, is that Virginia or Maryland? Um, that's, I think that's Maryland. Yeah, it's Maryland. I think it was, it was Maryland. Yeah. Uh, and so there was, there was that. Um, and so there seems to be something going on here. I mean, has it just like the LGBT stuff? I mean, has it just like pushed too far? I mean, is that, is that all that's happening here? And sort of pride month is sort of the, uh, is sort of the shelling point for people who are fed up to push back. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that it's not just about the tea, right? Um, there seems to be more of a, a, a general pushback and that doesn't mean that people, you know, have changed their minds, for example, on an issue like gay marriage, uh, but just the sense that enough is enough. We're tired of, of seeing this 24 seven. It's kind of the live version of that meme with the, the tuba, you know, and like over the face of the girl and, and it's written on the tuba is like LGBT propaganda. And like, people are just sick of the 24 seven celebration. And I think to the extent that uh, the pride celebration has pushed further and further, even aside from the T, like, for example, just plain old drag queens, not, you know, people who claim to be as a matter of truth, right. The opposite sex, but like plain old drag queens. We had, the Dodgers incident with with the uh, Sisters of Perpetual in, uh, Indulgence or whatever they're called, um, who apparently are a long running activist group that actually interrupts Catholic services and, and does things like that. But um, I, I think there's a general or, or even some of the, the images of, of Pride Parade stuff of like, you know, guys in leather and and uh, like dog ears or whatever, where there are children present. Um, I, I do think there's there's a certain uh certain push tipping point where people are just fed up with this kind of of deviancy in the public square uh there was sort of a tolerance and and the deal with with gay marriage was oh we're going to uh you know we're going to let the, the the gays into these bourgeois norms right they're going to get a nice white picket fence since a lot of people did um and i think americans still probably have very little problem with that but it was a bit like uh our 90s view towards china where we thought that um that that system would sort of reflect the American system and, and the, the end of history and the triumph of liberal de- democracy, right, in the 90s. And instead, what happened is elements of their system really fed back into ours. And I think that's kind of what happened with, with a lot of this this Pride Month stuff, where people thought, oh, like, we extend gay marriage and equality in a certain sense, in this sense, um, this is going to to feed back into bourgeois norms. And actually they're going to join us on, on this with our white picket fence and we're going to grill for 4th of July. And that was kind of the deal. That's the Andrew Sullivan deal that was presented to America. Um, and what they got instead was this, this ever escalating sort of uh, obvious deviant behavior in public in pride events and then endorsed by major corporations. And I do think that, that people have kind of reached a tipping point with that. All of that being said, there are backlashes all the time and, there are institutional forces at play. And I'd be very curious to see if this actually is converted uh, into real policy or real change in any way. If it's just that the companies are a little quieter about this for a few years while the backlash dies down, uh, it won't ultimately be very effective. But if, if there are real changes made on behalf of this in a more lasting way, it may be. Yeah. I mean, California, I mean, is really, I mean, the, the, it doesn't seem like any backlash is going to affect it. I mean, this seems to be the number one, you know, pride month and sort of activity seems to be the number one priority of the state government. Um, they, uh, 
uh, the uh, just last like over one day, like the uh, office of the governor of California was tweeting out like it was threatening some local school board in Riverside because they have these uh, LGBTQ requirements for social s- studies and some local like school didn't want to implement them. And like the governor's like threatening them. And then the governor is also threatening uh, Orange County. They didn't they didn't want to put up the pride flag. during pride. <laughs> so like they're like, you know, I guess there's no state law on this, but they're just like telling them like, you know, they just denounce like the local government. Um, they denounce, of course, the Armenians in Glendale. I mean, there's something, you know, there's something very bizarre. I mean, there's just some like kind of fanaticism on this issue. Um, I've got to show you, there's this, uh, uh, did you see that video of that one state legislator, that woman, a red haired woman in uh, Nebraska, who just like is screaming like trans kids exist or something like that. Just trans kids exist. Breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a long New Yorker profile of this woman. Um, and like the people around her and it's, she was doing this for months and months. She was holding up the entire, you know, uh, Nebraska as the only uh, unicameral legislature in the country. So she was, she was like about the, 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 they were trying to, you know, stop uh, gender affirming, so-called gender affirming care for kids. And she just held up like the entire business of the, um, of the state house over this. Um, and it's really, I mean, it's just, you see this sort of like, fanaticism of these like you know mostly mostly white women i think like who are like either teachers or like politicians who are in these like you know uh or in these like professional you know settings you don't see like a lot of cis hetero men like you know crying about trans kids dying it's just not that common um i don't you know i'm 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 a little bit i'm confused like how we got to this point like do you do you have a sense of like who these people are and like where they came from and how this became like their number one priority I mean, I have two separate answers on that. One is more general and applies to both sexes, and one's on specifically with regard to women. The one on specifically with regard to women is I think it's misapplied, um, sort of uh, misapplied uh, family and maternal instincts. Uh, and I think you see that on issues like immigration too, right? Where generally, and, the, and this is not a critique necessarily of women, although it might be a critique of, of um, how much power they have in terms of the public square, but uh, it's not a critique of women to say that women are more, um, that their hearts are more easily moved by whatever like plight uh, of, of the less fortunate around them. I don't think that that's a bad thing. Uh, it can be very, very important within a family, for example, or very important within a community. So before all the women sort of entered the public square and went off to work, if you look at any small town, um, any, any, and this is actually relevant to something that you tweeted Richard, but um, there were basically two things that women did for the, the public square and for the town that were incredibly important that have atrophied. Both of them have atrophied and made enormously since women went and sort of participated in the larger public square and in politics. One is basically every statue that you've ever seen and the ones, a lot of the ones that are coming down, of course, in 2020, um, but any sort of public monument in small towns almost always put up by a women's organization. Um, if you look at those plaques on the side, it almost always say, you know, the the daughters of this town or daughters of, um, you know, uh, Civil War veterans or, um, you know, it's usually a women's local women's civic organization that does a lot of that stuff. And uh, to the extent that we've lost those kinds of civic organizations, because there's only so many hours in a day and now women are getting paid for their labor, um, that's that's disappeared. And the other thing is, of course, that very bright women who are now in law firms or, or uh, in business or in corporate America uh, used to be teachers. Um, and, and the quality of, of teaching has suffered enormously as those women have gotten more options uh, and therefore have gone off to, uh, to make a bunch of money just like the men have. Um, and the quality of teaching has suffered enormously because of that. I think that's, there's, there's a few academic papers that basically trace this, but of course they're, you know, very, uh, they're cancelable and people pretend, try to pretend that they, they don't exist. But these are, even if you're in favor of women sort of going off to work and entering the public square, you have to acknowledge that these are trade-offs. These are things that were done for communities and for future future generations. Um, and they're public things. And, and they're things that um, either don't exist anymore at all, um, or they exist in a, in a much lower quality way because the people who invest in them um, or have not been of the quality of the people who left, the women who left uh, behind those roles. But in a larger sense, there's an argument to be made about like the crisis of meaning in the West and and the the following falling away from religion. And I say this as somebody who's an atheist, right? I just I think it's pretty clear now that uh, a lot of these causes do fill something about identity 
and about you know righteousness and um, having a purpose in life that has just we have not been able to replace that feeling that people once sought in religion. I, I think it's it's this is not a new comparison, but it, it, it I don't think it's a, a bad framework to think of of wokeism as America's fifth great awakening. Yeah, yeah, that all makes that all makes sense um, as far as uh, women and. Yeah, they're how they sort of relate to politics. I guess I'm wondering, you know, yeah, I get the maternal instinct, misplaced maternal instinct, and all that. Why the why the trends? Like, how did we get to like choose your, you know, choose your gender? I mean, it, it, you know, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of the, you know, there's the, um, there's the, you know, there's the BLM stuff. Um, you know, there's other things, but this in particular, like for like public school teachers and like the liberal white woman, it's just gay and trans seems to like really dominate their mind in a way that like nothing else does. Right. Um, and what was it about this issue in particular that, you know, that sort of sucked up that instinct? No, I think, I think there have been other issues. I think um, the, the reason that we're here, and this is one of the things that I argue with a lot of my allies about, because I have, I have worked with a lot of TERFs uh, because I work on issues of the definition of sex under law and, um, you know, women's sports and all of that. Um, I've worked with a lot of TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists, and um, I like a lot of them. And they, they they certainly take a lot of slings and arrows um, in a way that actually conservatives really don't, because we don't have, I, I think of myself, for example, sort of pre-canceled, right? My networks, my social networks and my professional networks don't depend on the left in the same ways. Therefore, like saying controversial things about men and women, for example, um, doesn't, require as much courage uh, from me as it does from them um, because the consequences aren't there. But I, I do think this is all of a piece. Um, this didn't start a few years ago. And, and I think the trans thing, for example, is perfectly compatible both with all the waves of feminism, uh, but also with, with uh, uh, Justice Kennedy's words in Casey, right? At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's con own concept of existence, meaning in the universe and the mystery of human life or whatever I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. But um, it turns out that carving yourself out of uh, whole cloth is is a very um, ongoing and I think immiserating process um, and with no signposts. So you don't define yourself I think the three major bases that human beings have answered this question, and this is from Mary Everstadt's work, but it's that question, who am I, has been nation or tribe, right? It expanded to the nation, maybe, maybe not, um, has been family and has been religion, right? So who am I? I'm a child of God or, or uh, I'm a member of this religion. Uh, who am I? I'm a daughter. I'm a wife. I'm a, a mother, right? Um, who am I? I'm I'm a member of tribe X, right? I'm, I'm a Jew or I'm an American. And those are two very different identities, right? Um, with different sort of uh, cachet in, in each one. But all of those things have, are, are on the downslope. All of the, the like, we, we don't have intact families increasingly. Um, so we don't have that kind of example. Uh, we don't define ourselves as part of our families necessarily anymore. It is much more atomized. Um, you know, we, we certainly have the decline of religion. And then even now, if we see like nation states, the existence of nation states, while it's coming, you know, there's a backlash where it's roaring back. Um, there is this temptation to, to discover in the digital age and mass communication that, in fact, elites have more in common with each other across national boundaries than they might have in common with their fellow countrymen within national boundaries. I, I, and layer on top of that, since the 1960s, the left has been saying it's jingoistic and borderline, you know, sort of xenophobic or whatever else to, to actually take pride in your country. Um, it's dangerous. It makes you like Hitler. Right. So, I mean, there's not a lot of those natural bases left. So it doesn't surprise me that people are so attached to uh, their I identities in this way. This is what makes them special. It makes them them you. Right. Um, and so that's why people react like you're attacking. If, if you say men can't become women, it's like, no, you're you are you're attacking who I am, right? As opposed to adjudicating a question. Yeah, but those seem like, it seems like there's a few different things there. So when you say it's sort of like they're defining, you know, the people are just defining themselves. It seems like the, you know, the propaganda from uh, the, the the sort of the trans activism is sort of the opposite. It's like a very hard, like genetic deterministic, I'm a boy and I have these chromosomes, you know, I have these chromosomes 
they, you know, classify me as a male, but I am so, you know, I'm so female in my brain that like, no matter, like, despite all the programming, like I have to wear dresses and I have to play with dolls. Right. I don't know. Is this, is this, I mean, is this consistent with like all the waves of feminism? If it's really sort of like, you know, this, this kind of, you know, sort of blank slateism that I see as sort of the heart of a lot of feminism. I mean, is, is this, is this really like consistent with the trans stuff? Because the trans stuff seems to me, seems to me be like, a you know a sort of a, a like the scientific sort of you know assertions um and you know the, some of these some of them have like the, some of them do have the uh you know some of the things that you're required to say do have sort of the flavor of like religious incantation like you have to say you know someone's a woman they identify as a woman okay you have to define woman woman in their way but what they actually are saying is going on is there is a thing called a male brain and there is a thing called a female brain and like the outer is one thing and like the inner is another thing and you're just sort of born that way and you have to accept it right now or i'm gonna commit suicide and you're gonna have all the ki- the blood of all these kids on earth it seems like they're saying no there is no choice it's it's just as it seems like it's just as like uh you know tangible and real as like nationhood or race or sex or anything else it's like they're, they're you know they they want to act like it's a real you know but bi- there's a biological basis to all of this and i don't know it seems a lot of it seems really sort of intention with a lot of other things that liberals supposedly believe yeah i mean to some extent yes to some extent no specifically on the scientific part of this and it seems like first of all this is not backed up by science they say it is because they say all the like the no, I, I wasn't are, under the impression that it was. No, no, no. I, I know you haven't, but the, specifically this point about having female brains and male bodies, it turns out like, yes, if you compare, for example, male to female transsexuals to uh, straight men, then they do have more feminine sort of, um, well, all of these scans about the PET scans and how what areas of the brain light up are kind of a, a bit of a mixed bag anyway. But but even if we, even if we imagine that this, these studies are very serious, um, what, what hasn't been done is comparing them to homosexuals. Um, and it turns out, actually, to the extent that those comparisons have been done, their brain patterns tend to run more towards the homosexual, except for some of the AGP types who are like actually like straight men from New Jersey, to quote Sex in the City, um, who have a specific sexual fetish about this. Um, but it seems like what, what's happening is a, sort of a resurgence of the idea of the soul, right, where we give the mind uh there's something like sort of ineffable and separated about quote unquote who we are um that that can't really be questioned that can't really be be defined we we simply know that there's this sense of ourselves and it almost seems like it comes along with all of the same you know mind body problems or soul body problems that were you know the, the stuff of philosophy in the middle ages um so that's kind of interesting uh and then specifically to define de- defend my point which i believe i'm maybe not alone in making but in uh I haven't seen a lot of other people argue it this way because most conservatives seem to think that it's a straight line from gay marriage to the trans stuff. And I actually think it's, they're connected in a certain way that if you imagine marriage to be the union of partners based on love, um, that it makes sense to then include homosexual unions in that. And and inherent in there is the idea that complementarity is not an essential part of marriage or procreation is not an essential part of marriage, right? So to that extent, they are sort of connected, but I, I really see whether we tolerate or celebrate um, homosexuality as sort of an offshoot. I, I, to me, the fundamental, the reason that I think that the TERFs have an internal contradiction they can never resolve is because they claimed that men and women, the differences between men and women were largely in, a, in a very important ways socially constructed. And they've always claimed that, that there's not a strong biological basis for why men are one way and women are another way. And, and it seems like very, a very unprincipled exception to me because the biological differences above the neck, in the brain, in psychological traits, and all of this stuff, right, um, in evolutionary biology, all of those differences between the sexes are just as biological as whether someone has a penis or a vagina. Um, it's more obvious in the latter case, right? It, our brains are inside our heads, right? Like, it's not as obvious as secondary sex characteristics, but they're just as biological. Like, the, the neurological differences between men and women are just as biological as the um, the sex characteristics outside their bodies is not any you know less concrete or real or physical, um, but they've always denied the first part of it. And now that the, the train has finally got off on the station, where even our bodies, especially in a you know sort of digital age, our bodies can be rearranged uh, to match whatever or how we feel inside our brains. Um, I think I think it's very uncomfortable for feminists to talk about, for example, oh hey, 
these sex differences, these biological sex differences, they, they might be real and they might have implications about how men and women live their lives or how society should encourage them to live their lives. They might have implications about what makes a good man versus a good woman. Those things might not be identical, right? And I, I think there's, there is a tension. I don't see any principled reason to say, well, male and female brains are just interchangeable. There's no neurological differences to deny the biology on that front. But then, okay, well, then if it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman with regard to family choices, career choices. These are all things that are way more important than how fast you swim the 200 meter butterfly, by the way, right? Like in anybody's life, you've, you've been saying sex is unimportant for a hundred, more than 150 years. Sex is unimportant to the most, you know, basic functions of society. Well, to now turn around and say, well, but, but actually in this very limited number of cases. Now you want to win swimming. Yeah. Now, now we're not so equal anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does seem like it's just, it's contradictory to me. Yeah. And I, I think I just think they're wrong about that. I think if they go back and they read Simone de Beauvoir, they'll find everything they need for trans, the trans ideology. I love it. I love the, I love the attacking the turfs from the, uh, from the right. That's why there's the, you know, that we don't have, we don't have time for, for this now, but you know, I, was to say, I, I sort of think Dylan Mulvaney is maybe, I don't want to say conservative icon, but actually like, you know, there's something, there's something about Dylan Mulvaney. That's, that's sort of the sort of interesting that we can uh, go into, but we'll have to, we'll have to save it for some other time. All right, Ernest, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, it's always great talking to you, Richard.